day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, I'm glad you've chosen to spend this time with us today. Today, we are going to begin our 2021 WDET book club discussions about the U.S. Constitution and the ways in which it shaped and still guides our notions of equality in this country. Equality, of course, is one of our country's most animating concepts. Beginning with the Declaration of Independence in 1776, equality propels the very idea of the United States of America. And in the summer of 1789, as the framers argued and fought over the provisions that would be included in the new Constitution, equality took center stage. Equality among branches of government. Equality among states. And most important, equality among the new nation's citizens. But let's be honest. The framers didn't come close to getting it right when it came to equality among citizens. They ensured freedom for white men of a certain class, but they held everyone else in some form of diminished status. African Americans were literally considered property. Women were second-class citizens who couldn't even vote in most states. And so many other protections were denied on the basis of distinctions among Americans. Things like creed and belief and lifestyle. What we hope to do in this year's book club is to trace the path from the nation's founding to today, when so many of our deepest divisions and conflicts are really about these fundamental ideas of equality. And we want to look at the ways in which the Constitution has both propelled us forward and held us all back. At its core, equality is the hinge upon which the idea of freedom swings. The founders certainly understood that there couldn't be freedom without equality, and yet they claimed to be establishing a free nation in which so many citizens were denied equal protection just all across the board. The next 245 years, of course, are marked by our efforts to perfect those flaws. And the journey is far from over. So I'm really excited to spend time this summer in 2021 talking with you, our listeners, about that journey, about what's behind us and what's ahead. We're going to start today at the beginning with the Constitution itself. And I've got two really expert folks with us today to help frame up this conversation. Kim Ford Mazrui is a professor of law and director of the Center for the Study of Race and Law at the University of Virginia Law School. Kim Ford Mazrui, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. And Michelle Gilman is a professor of law and director of the Saul Ewing Civil Advocacy Clinic and co-director of the Center on Applied Feminism at the University of Baltimore. Michelle Gilman, welcome to Detroit Today. Pleasure to be here. Uh, And before we even start, I just want to note that uh, both uh, Kim Ford Masrui and Michelle Gilman are graduates of the University of Michigan Law School, just up the road from us here uh, in Ann Arbor. So, it is an all Michigan Detroit today. Uh, today, <laughs> so welcome you. Same class, class, in fact. <laughs> is that right? In 1993, yeah. right? Uh, okay, so uh, I want to start with 
uh, a sort of overview of the ways in which the Constitution frames and addresses issues of equality and inequality and where we have gone in the 245 years since with the help of the Constitution and sometimes with the hindrance of the Constitution itself. Uh, Kim Ford Masrui, I'm going to start with you. Uh, that's a big question. It uh, is. <laughs> so I'm going to probably focus mostly on um, Supreme Court interpretations, uh, but I want to acknowledge that the project of equality really involves all levels of government, all branches of government, and the private sector. Uh, but we tend to focus on Supreme Court decisions in part because uh, those decisions tend to place certain limits on what the other branches of government can do. So, um, so in terms of the Supreme Court, as you pointed out, it's it's evolved over time, both in terms of the text of the Constitution, and then also the Supreme Court's interpretation. So even when equality was added after the Civil War, the Supreme Court interpreted it to allow uh, segregation until you know the 1950s and 60s. So it's really just been a little over a half century that um, the court has sort of explicitly committed itself to uh, racial equality, and even then in, in very imperfect ways. So the way it tends to frame it is, it tends to frame it as what are the reasons that government can treat people differently? Mm. Um, sometimes people think equality means you have to be treated the same, but that would make law impossible because law treats people differently. That's what law generally does. So the question is, when is it all acceptable to draw distinctions between people uh, and, and when is it not? And that tends to be the way the court frames it. And it's very much as how government treats individuals um, in a very formalistic way. So it's, it's not so much what government owes its people, but rather what government uh, has to, kind of in a sense, refrain from doing to its people. Mm -hmm. um, it can't discriminate for unjustified reasons. And, you know, I don't want to go on too long, but um, in the second half of the 20th century, the court created a kind of system where it depends on what's the basis of discrimination. And then that triggers a different um, test that the court applies to decide whether it's constitutionally acceptable. So with uh, if race or national origin or religion are the basis of discrimination, then the court applies a very strict test that usually means the discrimination is invalidated. For virtually all other types of bases, the court's actually quite lenient. So if government wants to discriminate between people because of age or disability or whether you have a license to do something, uh, it, it usually allows it. it. It allows a great variety of reasons to discriminate uh, on those kinds of bases. And then sex, which I know is an important topic for today, mm -hmm. has this what's called an intermediate position where the court does apply a fairly strict uh, test. So most discriminations on the basis of sex are unconstitutional since the 19, you know, basically 1970s. Um, but, um, but the test does allow for some discriminations that it doesn't allow in the case of, say, race or religion. Yeah. Um, uh, Michelle Gilman, uh, I said in the open that 
equality is the hinge upon which any notion of freedom has to has to swing, and that certainly the founders understood this, that uh, there was this inherent relationship between the freedom they wanted and the idea of equality. And yet they, they founded a nation that baked inequality, profound inequality, into uh, the principal document that was going to, to guide that nation. Uh, it seems to me that the 245 years since have been about us trying to, to correct that, uh, perfect that flaw, but, but also about the tensions that, uh, that, that that imperfection raises and defines, that uh, this is a, a nation that claims a mantle of equality that it didn't fulfill in the beginning, and that there is always going to be a struggle because of that, because of that initial shortcoming. Right. We are very much a work in progress as we strive towards equality. One thing the framers did well was to have the foresight to know that things change over time. And they did provide for ways that our Constitution could be amended. And we've had quite significant amendments as we strive towards equality. So Professor Ford Missouri already talked about the 14th Amendment, um, which very much secures equality as a norm and governing principle in the Constitution. And when it comes to gender, um, in almost 101 years ago, we enacted the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, extending the right to vote to women. So these are concepts that weren't baked in to the Constitution at the founding, but that have been changed over time as society and culture changes and has more sophisticated understandings of equality. And right now we're facing a push by many activists to amend the Constitution yet again and to add an equal rights amendment to secure the highest levels of constitutional protection um, on the basis of gender. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so you both um, study gender and sex issues in American law and in constitutional law. And uh, you, you were both talking uh, some there about uh, the, the ways in which uh, gender equality and inequality is framed up in the Constitution and uh, the way it's unfolded over time. But I also want to stop before we get to, to that subject and talk about race, which, of course, is also uh, a fundamental um, area in which the, con- the Constitution itself falls very short uh, of, that, of that goal of equality, and talk about how we have been able to move closer to that equality over time, but also about uh, the tensions that still exist uh, about what the Constitution originally said uh, and how much that uh, how much equality, I guess, uh, uh, we could expect in a in a nation that didn't afford it in in the first place. Uh, this idea that African Americans were property when this country was founded, I think, still animates so much of the discussion and the the struggle uh, of African Americans uh, to 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 be equal uh, in this in this country. Uh, Professor Mazrui, I wonder if you can start by by just talking about some of that history and some of the tensions that we still confront today. 
Sure. Uh, a key change that the court made in the mid 20th century in interpreting equality as applied to race is a move towards prohibiting uh, the government from from making distinctions based on race. So it started striking down school segregation, segregation in other contexts. Uh, and, you know, if, if in large part, that's a good thing because those intentional discriminations by uh, government and, and in the private sector were, uh, were being used to continue to oppress and deny opportunities systematically to black people and other people of color. Uh, I think, unfortunately, the court has gone too far in mandating what it sometimes calls colorblindness, meaning that race has to be ignored by the state. Because once you've had centuries of systematic oppression, then um, simply stopping discrimination doesn't correct for the economic and social inequalities that have been created by that oppression. And so um, what's really needed is the ability of, of the government to affirmatively provide uh, opportunities for black people to, to close the gaps that exist, uh, such as affirmatively improving educational opportunities or employment and the like. Um, but because the court increasingly adopts this colorblind position, it prevents the government from engaging in these affirmative efforts to correct inequality. So in a sense, it sort of freezes the status quo, uh, which includes a lot of the inequality that still persists. Mm. So a lot of the struggle between, say, liberals and conservatives to oversimplify somewhat is to what extent can the government take account of race for beneficial purposes uh, where liberals want to allow a certain amount of race conscious uh, policies where conservatives tend to say that race just has to always be ignored. And of course, uh, the, the, that that tension between uh, the idea of colorblindness and some sort of uh, affirmative race race consciousness is is uh, tinted with a bit of irony, I guess, uh, given that uh, for so long um, the court and the Constitution uh, was interpreted by the court to 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 say that uh, that race did matter and that uh, that it was okay to uh, to divide Americans or draw distinctions among Americans uh, along racial lines. Uh, the the switch to saying that uh, government could not do that uh, now seems to to embrace the idea that uh, in the to the same effect in other words uh, the opposite approach uh, to the same effect that uh, you 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 cannot assure equality now uh, according to race the same way that before they said uh, you couldn't uh, assure um, uh, actual, uh, you know, um, progress according uh, to race. I mean, there's a there's a there's a dichotomy there that I guess uh, I, I think is is troublesome and and problematic and and again gets back to this question of uh, whether the Constitution and its flaws uh, 
um, are, are not perfectible in in a, a society that uh, that's that's cast by, uh, according to that that mold. In other words, those original flaws uh, uh, seem to find a way to persevere. Is that is that a is that a fair interpretation, Professor Mesri? Yeah, I agree with your your troubledness. Uh, it, <laughs> it it means race was used to create inequality, and then when and then now it's it's prohibited from being used to to undo that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how can you undo how can you undo uh, mistreatment on on the on the base of race without taking account of race? It's it's illogical, and and so it does result in, in just the perpetuation of, of inequality. And, you know, some people might think, well, the problem was taking account of race, so we shouldn't do that anymore. Well, the problem wasn't taking account of race. It, the problem was taking account of race for particularly for particular reasons. When you take account of race in order to exclude people from opportunities uh, and relegate them to a lower caste of uh, life, uh, the problem is that it wasn't just taking account of race. If you permit an analogy, um, conservatives tend to emphasize states' rights, which is an important part of our constitutional structure that states have sovereign authority over certain matters that the federal government cannot directly regulate. Um, One could say states' rights was used to justify slavery and states' rights was used to justify segregation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think uh, many conservatives in particular would accept that, therefore, we should abolish states' rights. They would say what we need to do is uh, prevent states' rights from being used for oppressive purposes, not eliminate them completely. Yeah. So I would say for similar reasons, we want to eliminate race distinctions that unfairly oppress people, but allow race distinctions that are necessary to uh, advance equality. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue our initial uh, WDET 2021 book club discussion about the U.S. Constitution and the ways that it shaped and frames discussion of equality here in 2021. Uh, We are going to get to you as well, uh, get your calls and your social media comments into the conversation. Uh, 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET delivers trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking about our WDET book club this hour, our initial discussion about the U.S. Constitution and the ways that it influences 
discussions of equality, both in the past, in the present, and into the future. Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. What questions do you have about the way the Constitution and American law affect equality and inequality in this country? What do you think needs to change about our laws or maybe even our foundational documents to guarantee equal protection for all Americans, something that we have found pretty elusive over the 245 years of this country's existence. Uh, also, do you view America as a place that is founded on equality and equal opportunities? And do you feel like it has fulfilled those promises uh, to all kinds of different uh, Americans? Or do you think the ways in which inequality is baked into the Constitution tell a different story than the one we often want to tell ourselves about what this country is and what it stands for. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. My guests this hour are Kim Ford Masrui, who is a professor of law and director of the Center for the Study of Race and Law at the University of Virginia Law School. Also with us is Michelle Gilman. She is a professor of law and director of the Saul Ewing Civil Advocacy Clinic and co-director of the Center on Applied Feminism at the University of Baltimore. Again, 313-577-1019. Give us a call and let us know what you think about the U.S. Constitution and the way it influences equality uh, in our in our nation. Um, professors, I want to I want to talk about some of the texts that uh, that you have pointed to uh, in discussions with our producers in preparation for the show uh, about equality and it, the role that uh, the Constitution has uh, has played in the push for equality. Professor Gilman, um, you were talking about uh, you sent over an article that says Quote, progress toward gender equality in the United States has slowed or stalled. I wonder if you can talk about what is happening there and why you think it is happening. Sure. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we're about to celebrate the 101st anniversary of the 19th Amendment, extending the right to vote to women. And there's no doubt that in that 101 years, women and girls have made tremendous progress towards equality. But we still very much have a long way to go. A constitutional uh, amendment on its own, uh, you know, divorced from the context and its interpretations, doesn't uh, do all of the heavy lifting. And so today, when we think about, you know, what does it mean to have full gender equality, we're certainly not there yet, right? There's so many issues um, in which equality is stripped from women and girls, you know, in terms of domestic violence, one in four women have been victims of severe physical violence in their lives. In terms of sexual harassment, 81% of women have experienced some form of sexual harassment during their lifetime. We still have a very stubborn gender pay gap, and that's part of that idea that our progress is plateauing. We're still very much stuck at the point where women earn 82 cents for every dollar a man earns, and for women of color, that um, pay gap is even worse. It's an even bigger pay gap. Um, in terms of political representation, women make up more than half the population. We know that. They vote at even higher rates than men do. 
but they account for less than one third of all elected officials at city, state and national levels combined. Um, in terms of reproductive justice, women are now facing many attacks in that area. In the first six months of this year alone, states enacted 90 abortion restrictions, mm-hmm. which is more than any year since Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973. Um, Women shoulder most of the responsibility for caregiving in our society, and we don't have paid leave or subsidized childcare, as do many of our peer nations. So we still have quite a way to go to really fulfill any version of gender equality. And as Professor Ford Mizrui said, in the context of race, this idea of formal equality and colorblindness um, cannot do the work towards real substantive equality, mm. right? It's like saying, we're going to let you all on the playing field, right? So everyone flows mm. onto the playing field, but there's a team there that doesn't have balls, mitts, or bats, right? Mm. It's a very, very formal idea. And so in all the areas that, you know, I just mentioned, and there are many more, um, you know, women may have access to the workplace. We're not formally barred from the workplace, but we're not being paid the same as our male peers. Right. And so there's still... So much work that needs to be done in terms of race and gender and other identities to fulfill a version of equality that isn't about this formal notion of equality, but really making sure that every American has the tools and resources they need to fulfill their personal capacity and to flourish in our society. Mm. And uh, just listening to you describe uh, that, that landscape kind of reminds me of I think a, a fundamental disagreement that we still have in this country about what equality means and what it should mean, uh, and that's the distinction between equality of opportunity uh, and equality of outcome. Uh, and I, I hear a lot of people talk about the idea that, look, uh, the, the words are there on the page now to make sure that there is, quote-unquote, equality of opportunity, that there are not legal ways to hold a certain class of people back. Um, and they say, but that doesn't guarantee equality of outcome, and there are other things that, that influence the way things are, and so it's not fair, perhaps, to talk about these things in the context of equality or constitutional equality. Uh, Professor Gilman, I wonder uh, what you say in answer to those kinds of arguments. Well, I agree with that. And I think, you know, the Constitution is very much a living and breathing document. And a lot of the meaning we ascribe to it is the meaning that Supreme Court justices have given to it. A lot of the meaning that's been baked into it isn't actually in the text of the Constitution, Mm -hmm. and it could be interpreted in different ways. But we also can't expect you know, the Constitution to solve all these problems. For one thing, the Constitution uh, protects us against government overreach and government abuse. It doesn't get to private action. And so we also need uh, Congress and a political system that's responsive to equality concerns and enacts laws that move the ball forward Uh, for all people, regardless of their identity. So the Constitution is part of the story. But, you know, as you said at the outset, you know, we have three branches of government. And um, this is an area where lawmaking 
uh, can be really, really important to secure equality, both equality of opportunity and equality of outcome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Professor Mazrui, uh, you've written about how you think that the proposed Equal Rights Amendment would actually be a threat to gender and sex equality. It's one of the things that you pointed to when we were talking about um, uh, framing up this discussion on the, the show today. So, so first, I'd love for you to explain uh, for listeners who don't know uh, what the ERA is and what it would do, and then why you think that it would fall short of the promise that, uh, that so many people think it has. Sure. Um, this is a paraphrasing, but it, it essentially says uh, equal rights in the United States shall not be abridged or denied by the United States or by any state on account of sex. That's pretty close to right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was initially uh, proposed in 1923 uh, at a time when you know there was systematic formal inequality. Uh, and so it was framed to address that by saying, you know, we need to prohibit government from taking account of sex because look how it's using that. It's using it to um, to oppress women. Uh, but as Professor Gilman was just observing, um, so many of the challenges that are needed to advance women's equality today require legislative responses. Uh, and the trouble is, is even without the ERA, the Supreme Court has, has, as we've been discussing, increasingly interpreted uh, equality as applied to race and sex in ways that um, mandate sort of this blindness idea, color blindness and sex blindness. Uh, and that means some of the things that might be helpful to improving sex equality, um, whether it's in the form of affirmative action or providing uh, educational opportunities, uh, paid uh, parental leave, uh, addressing some of the causes of uh, unequal pay, uh, are potentially in jeopardy because to engage in those legislative activities, the legislatures have to think about sex. They have to say, you know, what are the sex inequalities that uh, need attention? And so to the extent the court is suggesting we have to ignore sex, then uh, those efforts are stymied by the courts. Now, as I heard said earlier today, the test the court applies to sex discrimination by the government is more lenient than the test it applies to race. So it does allow for some degree of uh, taking account of sex for beneficial purposes that it that the court does not allow for race because race it mandates more more of a strict blindness test. And my my concern is that uh, the ERAs, but at least the, the version that's been pending for over a century, is written in or almost a century in this sort of formal language that I fear the court would interpret to further ratchet up the test as applied to sex uh, distinctions to be like race, so that government would virtually always have to ignore sex Mm -hmm. uh, more than it does under the current interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause. And I fear that that would make it so uh, a lot of the efforts that Professor Gilman alludes to that are needed 
uh, in the political process to address sex inequality uh, could be uh, challenged in court and struck down as, you know, engaging in uh, sex conscious government action. Yeah. Uh, and and before I get the Professor Gilman's reaction to this, this line of thinking, I, I just want to sort of stop and note that th- there are a lot of instances in which uh, this kind of thinking, you know, uh, influences the way we talk about the Constitution and, and laws that, that uh, there is, pro- you know, the process is one of the things that uh, we have to consider, the, the, the way in which we're trying to guarantee equality and whether unintended effects of, of the things that we do actually undermine uh, the 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 outcome that that we might want. There are lots of examples in U.S. history, of course, of us trying to take a step forward uh, and instead finding that uh, maybe we end up with a half step back because of the way in which we've decided to pursue a change to uh, to equality. Is that is that a fair interpretation, Professor Masri? Uh Yeah, definitely. Um, there can be unforeseen consequences, especially because we do have a system where uh, where the courts have so much uh, authority and discretion to interpret uh, constitutional provisions. So depending on how they're written, uh, they can be then interpreted in a way that goes against the goals of the people who drafted it. Yeah. Uh, Professor Gilman, I'd, I'd love to hear you react to uh, Professor Mazrui's uh, criticism of of the ERA and his thought that it would cause more harm, perhaps, than good. Yeah, I think it's a very important argument uh, to consider, right, this risk that the same colorblindness that has stymied racial equality will be applied to sex blindness and stymie gender equality. For advocates of the ERA, um, they are, you know, hopeful that the amendment, if enacted, and there's a lot of controversy about uh, whether and if and how it will be enacted, but that it would give Congress greater authority to remedy some of the issues that I discussed earlier. There have been some situations where Congress has tried to legislate towards gender equality, And the Supreme Court has struck that down, saying Congress didn't have the power to do so. So, for instance, the Supreme Court struck down a private civil remedy provision under the Violence Against Women Act that allowed victims to sue their attackers. And the Supreme Court said Congress didn't have the constitutional authority to create that remedy. So for advocates of the ERA, they're hopeful that it would give a stronger grounding to congressional attempts to remedy gender inequality. Mm-hmm. There is also a lot of symbolic benefit in the, in the eyes of advocates to putting gender on the same plane as race mm-hmm. in terms of the constitutional structure. And to some degree, advocates are you know, playing the long game. We have a very, very conservative Supreme Court now, and they probably would take the very cramped, limited reading of the ERA that Professor Ford Majuri is concerned about. But if you're playing the long game, you realize these aren't going to be the same nine justices forever, and that um, this 
you know, language ensuring gender equality into the Constitution will have long-term benefits. So, um, but it does raise the point that these nine justices have incredible power to determine the meaning of the language of the ERA if and when it is enacted, right? It doesn't, you know, it has pretty powerful language, but the interpretation is everything. Um, and so it's, a, it's hard to predict with 100% certainty how they would interpret it. But I think uh, Professor Ford Missouri's concerns are, are very valid, given the makeup of this Supreme Court. Mm, yeah. OK, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation about the Constitution, how it frames equality, how it influences our discussions and uh, arguments about equality in 2021. Uh, we'll con- and we will get to your calls and your social media comments. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Tell us what you think about the way the Constitution and American law affect inequality and equality in this country. What would you like to see changed and what do you fear perhaps about the things that we see now, the moves that we see, maybe roll back some of those notions of equality. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guests are Kim Ford-Mazrui, who's a professor of law at the University of Virginia Law School. Also with us is Michelle Gilman, who's a professor of law at the University of Baltimore. Uh, they are joining us for the initial discussion in our 2021 WDET Book Club about the U.S. Constitution and the ways in which it influences and shapes equality, uh, the notions of equality that we have today, the arguments that we are having about equality today. Uh, We want to hear from you as well uh, during this conversation. Give us a call. Let us know what you think uh, about the way the Constitution and American law affect equality and inequality in this country. Uh, Do you view America as a place that's founded on equality and equal opportunities, or do you think that the ways in which equality is baked into the Constitution tell a really different story about us than we would like to tell. Uh, As always, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll make you part of the conversation that way. Let's go to Melissa here in Metro Detroit. Melissa, welcome to the show. Uh, Hi. uh, Thanks, Stephen, and Mm -hmm. hello to um, your guests. Mm -hmm. So, I have a question. So I wonder if it's possible that the majority of the framers really meant like kind of like an exclusive equality. So just um, amongst themselves, their group of wealthy, influential, well-educated, large landowners, they meant equality to resolve commerce and land disputes and regarding their political power. So so like my my view would be inclusive equality, but theirs was like exclusive only to their group Hmm. and that Really, that's the tension, the forever tension in our nation. Mm. Uh, That's a really wonderful question, Melissa, and it's something that I've heard raised before, that maybe the founders weren't being duplicitous or hypocritical 
uh, writing the words that they did, that they, they meant something different than equality for all people. Uh, they just meant equality for themselves and the people like them. I wonder, uh, Professor Ford Mazrui, what, what your reaction is to that idea. I think that's, uh, yeah, I think that's fair. I don't think that relieves them from being criticized because <laughs> right. they were still wrong to be exclusive in the way that they chose to be. But yeah, I mean, um, Abigail Adams famously wrote to John Adams saying, don't forget the ladies. And he thought that was a ridiculous suggestion that women should be included in the constitution. Mm. Uh, and of course the African African slavery was, uh, you know, preserved by the Constitution officially. So, um, and and I think it also points to the fact that um, we're always going to be debating what equality means. So, I don't think we'll ever perfect it in the sense of being totally inclusive because mm -hmm. we are all subject to, you know, the culture of our time where we we still believe certain, as a society, there's still going to be certain people that we think are in some ways harmful or immoral or a threat. Uh, and so we're continuing to always struggle about where does that line, where should that line be drawn between who gets included and who's not? I mean, we like to say everybody, but in practice, when you start thinking about different groups in our society, uh, there are people, whether it's immigrant status, uh, poverty, uh, transgender identity that in different regions uh, are viewed as outside the line of what should be included in equality. Mm. Mm. Uh, Professor Gilman, I wonder what you make of the idea that the framers didn't mean equality for everyone. They just meant equality for themselves and the people who who were like them, who were involved in the process of of framing the Constitution? I think it's a very fair statement. I mean, if you think about it, all of us speaking together right now, we weren't within the vision of equality <laughs> established by the founders, but the good thing is they didn't have the last word, right? And subsequently, you know, we have amended the Constitution to move towards greater equality. And it's an ongoing fight. It's an ongoing struggle. We can't rely you know, on a piece of paper alone to secure us rights. We have to constantly be demanding those rights, fighting for those rights, and perfecting those rights. Um, so as far as what the founders did, yes, they did not have an inclusive view of equality. But we can, and we can make that a reality. We are not bound forever by the social mores of the 1700s, <laughs> thankfully. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Ms. Melissa, I, I really appreciate, again, the call and the really provocative uh, question. Let's go to David in Southfield. David, what's on your mind? Uh, yes, um, I have a fundamental problem with, if, with regarding je possibly jeopardizing reality testing. I'm a physician, and it's not uncommon that someone will make a claim that's not fundamentally biologically correct. They'll say, for example, they're disabled when they're not. And you get a doctor to say that they they are not. Otherwise, you're predisposing persons to fraud and things like that. And my problem is that I understand if you are looking for something to be checking things are equal when they're really equal, but when they're not equal, and you try to make them equal, 
kind of jeopardizing reality testing so that you're influencing people to believe something that's not fundamentally true and making it legal. Hmm. And that's potentially a problem because if you, as a person, notice that there's something there and the law says there isn't anything there, and you have to agree with the law that there isn't, then you're basically, you know, jeopardizing your ability to test reality. So, so David, before I get uh, our guests to respond, I, I, I would like you to be just a little more specific about the distinctions you're talking about. Are you talking about gender distinctions? Are you talking about sex distinctions here? Um. Oh, you know, I'm having trouble hearing you, but oh. let's see, let me start up. Okay, I can hear you better now. Okay, I can yeah. hear you better. I, I, was asking, yes. I was asking if you could be more specific about what, what you're alluding to here. Well, for example, men and women are fundamentally different. They're just different. They have biological differences reflecting from hormones to their whole body and development and all kinds of things. And so to assume that everybody's the same... Um, you know, and you're going to make rules that apply that make it so that you ignore all the biology, all the science, everything based on political mm. demands seems to be that you're making people, you know, assume things that are not I in evidence. And it sounds like it's a it's an assault or jeopardizing of reality testing. Okay. If you see something that's not true, right, and David. then if you act upon it, you're you're really being penalized for being, you know, correct. Yeah, David, I I, I really appreciate the call and uh, the, the the really provocative ideas that that, that you're sharing here. Um, I, I want to get our, our guests to, to, to respond. Uh, Professor Gilman, uh, David's saying that uh, equal doesn't mean the same, I think, is, is probably a, a good way to, to, to sum that up, and, and that perhaps the push for equality is an attempt to make us all the same. How, how do you answer that? Well, I agree, and we, we've already talked about this a bit today, that formal equality doesn't do the work. We need to have a richer, more substantive notion of equality. Hmm. A, a prime example of what the caller is getting at is like, what do we do about pregnancy discrimination? This really <laughs> befuddled the Supreme Court under the 14th Amendment because men don't get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so they couldn't, they couldn't recognize pregnancy discrimination as unfair to women. And it was ultimately Congress <laughs> that barred pregnancy discrimination because it didn't fit within this formal equality notion that the Supreme Court has. So, you know, I think the caller is right that very narrow, crabbed interpretations of formal equality don't really result in the type of equality we want, which is people having, you know, the equal opportunities to flourish and to pursue, you know, their best ends and their best goals. Mm. Uh, Professor Ford, Mesru, I wonder what your reaction is to what David is saying here. Uh Similar, um, I think, the, yeah, so a lot of the theme we've been saying today is that being completely blind to the distinctions is uh, goes goes too far. Uh, where, where, you know, we might disagree is exactly what distinctions are real and legitimate and unavoidable uh, so that we should take them into account uh, and what are essentially products of our 
culture and socialization. Mm -hmm. So while there certainly are physical differences between uh, males and females, uh, historically, we have exaggerated those differences to believe that they are um, more more significant than they are. So they dictate, you know, that why women shouldn't serve on juries or uh, be lawyers or, you know, serve in business because their place is taking care of children and their husbands. Those are inherently where their biology dictates they're supposed to be. And and that, you know, men shouldn't have those roles. And, and we've learned that so much of those assumptions are are false. So I agree with wanting to look for what's the reality and what isn't. Um, it, it's just, we have, to act, we have to be careful not to, not to assume that differences we've traditionally assumed were sort of fundamental are so when in fact we keep learning that women and men can break from those traditional roles successfully. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to thank you both, uh, Kim Ford Masrui and Michelle Gilman, uh, for being here on this uh, initial discussion in our WDET book club. It was really great to have both of you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very thank much. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Okay. And a reminder that this is just the beginning of our WDET 2021 book club. And uh, you can be part of this all summer long. All you've got to do is join our WDET book club on Facebook, which has uh, nearly 900 members right now. Every time I look at that page, I am blown away by how many people want to participate in these conversations. You can also get more information about the book club at WDET.org slash constitution. Uh, and uh, next week, we will continue our book club con uh, con conversations with a really close look at race and uh, race inequality uh, over time uh, as it began in the U.S. Constitution uh, and as it continues today as we fight over voting rights and all kinds of other uh, racial barriers. Come back tomorrow when we talk about rent and home prices soaring as Americans flock back into cities. We're going to talk about what that means for our economy. Also, Congressman Dan Kildee will join the program. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.